This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Thank you for all for, all for being here. Uh, the words that um, we just chanted about uh, vowing to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words, that, that always humbles me when I'm going to give a talk and inspires me when I'm going to listen to a talk. Um, but today it might be particularly appropriate because what I want to focus on um, in the context of our, our practice period, um, which I think everybody knows is focused on refuge. Uh, I wanted to explore a fundamental teaching of the Buddha that's um, actually encompassed in our Bodhisattva vows. Um, but it's found when it was it, it, the earliest or one of its earliest uh, uh, recordings is in the Dhammapada. Um, it's verse 185 of, of the Dhammapada. And the Dhammapada is composed of a four line uh, gata, you know, kind of sayings. Um, and, uh, you know, it's usually considered to be the earliest teaching or the, the first teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha himself. And so this is what the Buddha said in verse 185, at least this is one translation into English of, the, uh, of these verses of this gatha. Renounce all evil, practice all good, keep your mind pure. Thus all the Buddhas taught. So renounce all evil, practice all good, keep your mind pure. Thus all the Buddhas taught. You know, so at first glance, um, these instructions, you know, appear pretty straightforward, <laughs> right? Or at least the first two. Um, the third, you know, might, might give us pause. It always gave me pause. Uh, keep your mind pure. What, what is that exactly? Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, these three are all, uh, while they're simple, pretty vast and maybe might feel unattainable. Um, and the four line form of the gata um, ends with the uh, observation or the claim that this is not just the teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, it's the teaching of all Buddhas, right? So all Buddhas throughout space and time, this is the, uh, the fundamental teaching, right? So that really underlines how fundamental they are. And you know, when I hear the word do no harm, which is another way that this is translated and, and it's the title I gave the talk, do no harm, do no evil or do no harm. You know, I think of the Vedic and the yogic principle of ahimsa, um, the, the Hindu uh, principle of ahimsa, right? The ah means not or no or non-harming, non rather, and himsa, violence, non-violence, non-injuring, non-harming. And, you know, and this has pretty well permeated our uh, contemporary culture, this idea of non-violence and its foundation in um, this body of thought and practice is, is uh, pretty familiar, I think, to many people in the West. Um, we should note, though, that this violence, this harm, um, actually can be done in, with, in three ways. Right? It's not just 
striking out at someone. Um, although that is like, you know, the first way with the body, violence of the body. But also expression, you know, especially expression with words. And then the third is um, violence or harm of the mind or with thoughts, right? There, there, so this is, uh, you know, car, this corresponds to our Zen understanding, our Buddhist Zen understanding of karma. Also, the karma that is the result of deliberate action and it's produced by body, speech, and mind. You know, and when I first realized this about karma, I was kind of um, overwhelmed because I thought, well, at least I'm not saying, you know, <laughs> the things I'm thinking, or I'm refraining from expressing myself violently, throwing things or flipping people off or whatever <laughs> I felt impelled to do. But I didn't pay enough attention to the mind part at the time. Um, and I still don't, and this is a confession here, um, especially these days, I find myself indulging my thoughts of uh, not exactly harm, but let's just say um, not nonviolence either um, in our current situation, which frankly, you know, is just what's happening and is always happening somewhere. Um, so, you know, there's really not much wiggle room <laughs> in these three, uh, what should we call them, you know, exhortations or um, imperatives, right? It sounds like we're being asked to do or not to do something. Um, and, in, and in preparing this talk, I, I read uh, that what Gandhi would say about ahimsa, you know, Gandhi, the great um, example of nonviolence, uh, he said, ahimsa paramo dharma. Nonviolence or non-harming is the highest dharma or law. One, one way to translate dharma is law. You know, and I also think of the oath um, that the Hippocratic oath that doctors take, right? First of all, whatever else you do, do no harm. <laughs> you know, so these uh, focus on preserving life, not making things worse, and treating other beings with thorough care. And I think, you know, these are good principles to live by. One way of understanding them is just try to refrain from harm, try to refrain from evil, try to do good, and we'll get to keeping your mind pure. Um, there's a, a famous story about these, um, these three precepts. Um, which uh, you may have heard before, it, it gets quoted a lot. Um, and it's, uh, it's quoted, and I'm gonna recount it here, as Dogen told it. Dogen is the founder of Soto Zen in Japan, the 13th century founder of Soto Zen, uh, Zen in Japan. And um, he tells the story that there was a Chinese Zen master, so this is before his time, whose name was Bird's Nest, right? Bird's Nest, Master Bird's Nest because he lived in a tree. He liked to go up a tree and meditate and live up in his tree. And one day a disciple of his, um, who also happened to be a government minister or a statesman, um, came to see him. So this is a high status person, uh, came to see him in his tree and yelled up, you know, that looks like a pretty precarious place to practice. 
And Bird Nest Roshi shouted back down to his visitor, you know, well, it looks pretty dangerous down there where you are. Um, and another time, the same disciple showed up where his master was up in the tree and asked a pretty typical Zen question, one of these cut through questions, which is sort of a challenge question. He said, um, what is the great matter of Buddhist teaching? And um, Bird Nest Roshi uh, referred to the first two of these three pure precepts. The heart of the teaching, he said, is refrain from all evil and do all good. That's it. And um, the disciple wasn't impressed <laughs> or he wanted to hear more. This is what disciples often are good for in these stories. They, you know, they kind of uh, elicit a further clarifying comment. Um, so the disciple said, oh, well, that's all well and good. Um, but even a three-year-old kid knows that, right? Don't do bad things, do good things. And bird nest master replied, a three-year-old knows it, but even an 80-year-old can't do it. And the statesman, you know, as often uh, in these um, exchanges, the only thing you can do is bow, <laughs> right? <laughs> Touche. So the statesman bowed to his teacher. And this story illustrates really well <laughs> um, the challenges of keeping these teachings of all the Buddhas, these fundamental teachings, right? Um, you know, Kokyo Henkel uh, suggests that Bird Nest Roshi's earlier response to his disciple, you know, that it was pretty dangerous down on the ground, you know, means that it's easy for us to cause harm, to do harm or cause harm when we're going around in the world. And, you know, my, my response to it is, we might just want to stay up in the tree, <laughs> right? Up in the tree or in our cave, <laughs> whatever our cave is, our closet, um, and remain above the fray, right? Um, keeping our mind pure, you know, you can do that when you're up in a tree and not actually interacting with anybody or it's easier anyway. It's more dangerous when you're down on the ground. Um, you know, what is it to do all good? You might think you're refraining from evil or refraining from harm by just keeping to yourself and, you know, not running the risk. But what is this doing all good then? And also, I think we all have the experience of thinking that we're doing good, only to have it completely backfire on us and realize actually we've caused harm. Um, you know, so one function in this, in this formulation of this gata of doing good is that it balances you know, the, the evil or the renouncing of the first line. But I think you know, there's more to it than, than that. So that's, you know, the early teaching. Simple three-year-old understands it, an 80-year-old has a hard time doing it. Even with all the, of our life experience, we keep screwing up. But what about our tradition? So our Zen practice is Mahayana Buddhism, meaning that we practice as bodhisattvas, right? Where we vow to put others first, to bring others across to save all beings before ourselves. We are literally enlightening beings and we practice for the benefit of all beings. 
And, you know, we could say that Mahayana Buddhism unfolds the early teaching. I, I read that. I can't now. I wish I had written down where exactly I read that. But I like that idea of, um, you know, Mahayana Zen, which sometimes so completely reformulates some of these early teachings or even seems to uh, contradict them, um, is, isn't doing that, is actually expanding them. You know, I sometimes think of um, like a, a Buddhism as a plant and it keeps blooming and blooming. You know, it, it opens, it keeps, it keeps uh, expanding um, as it's practiced by different cultures and different times. And as we uh, work with it, we understand it more fully. It's more fully illuminated. So that's how I, I feel about um, the Bodhisattva vow. Um, and, you know, in the Soto Zen that we practice, we call these three, I mentioned it a moment ago, they're the three pure precepts, right? They are actually three of the 16 bodhisattva precepts that we all practice and that we receive um, when we take part in the lay and priest ordination ceremonies, right? Um, the, actually, the first, they're, they're the second three. The first three are the refuges. So in the way we practice with uh, the precepts, the first three are, I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha, and then, um, you know, and that's what we're focusing on in this practice period. Then we, we take these three pure precepts. Um, and then we end with the 10 so-called grave precepts, uh, the, the ones that sound like, you know, commandments um, conventionally, the ones that begin with the first as a disciple of Buddha does not kill, so on. So 10 plus 3 plus 3 is 16. And now there are numerous ways that these three so-called pure precepts, which again, originally are, you know, don't harm or do no harm or do no evil, embrace all good, keep your mind pure. Um, there are numerous ways that these three pure precepts of Soto Zen are translated. And in our lineage, um, usually there we say, and now maybe it'll sound familiar, I vow to refrain from all action that creates attachment. Right? That's how we have processed do no evil <laughs> or don't do harm, do no harm. I vow to make every effort to live in enlightenment. That's embracing all good. And this is the Bodhisattva biggie. I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. Right? That's keeping our minds pure. That's how our practice understands these three original uh, um, teachings or admonitions. And they're pretty different <laughs> from the original wording, right? Because as I say, they come from this unfolding of the teaching in the Bodhisattva way. And as I hope to show in a, a little bit later, they aren't really in conflict with or that different from um, the early gata. Um, I think we'll see that in a minute, at least I hope we will. And if you don't see it, maybe we can talk about it. <laughs> um, and I found out in, in doing some um, background reading for this talk that the wording we use actually comes from Katagiri Roshi. I didn't know that. Maybe some old timers knew that, but I didn't know that. Um, it's a little bit different from the original wording, but it's pretty much Katagiri Roshi's wording. He is, for those who don't know, one of the um, priests, the Japanese priests, together with Suzuki Roshi and Koban Shino Roshi, who uh, came and practiced and led uh, us at the San Francisco Zen Center and established the, the lineage that we practice in. And 
he went on to found the Minnesota Zen Center. Um, and also these three precepts, just to kind of widen our context for how we practice with these, they're also part of our meal chant when we're doing full formal meals in the Zendo in the style that we call Oriyoki, you know, during a retreat where we eat silently and we, we chant things at various points in the meal as it's being served and, and all that. Um, once we are served our food, right, after we've all gotten our food, just before we start to eat, we say, we say something and then we say, the first portion is for the precepts, right? The first portion is for the precepts. The second is for the practice of samadhi or concentration. And the third is to save all beings. Thus we eat this food and awaken with everyone, right? So that's another <laughs> formulation, specifically in connection with eating um, of these three grave, uh, sorry, three pure precepts. And I think here we also have um, a pointer um, in that formulation, in the meal chant, um, that um, you know, the, the bodhisattvas practice with the precepts. We say, you know, the first portion is for the precepts, number one. Um, that is refraining from harm. The precepts are refraining from harm, renouncing evil, re doing no harm. That's the one way to understand that within the context of the bodhisattva vow. And we practice samadhi in the second line, right? The second portion is for the practice of samadhi. Um, that is all good. That is all good. And eating this food and awakening with everyone, right, is practicing together, awakening with everyone. No separation between us and other beings and no separation between us and our food either. So in a, in a nutshell, in, in the Bodhisattva way, um, this path that we're on completely includes all others in our practice, you know, to save all beings, as we sometimes say. And the three pure precepts of the Mahayana school are living in the truth of total interdependency with all things. That's what these three point to. And we live from the realization that we are not separate entities at all. We live and are lived by and for all beings, and that is the Bodhisattva way. So from here, I want to explore a couple of even more radical, I think, I feel they're kind of radical formulations of the Bodhisattva precepts beyond the ones that I've just mentioned that we're maybe a little familiar with. Um, and I, I want to um, quote Kokio Henkel, who will be talking to us in a couple of weeks, um, he puts these precepts in this way. Embracing and sustaining standards of conduct. That does sound like avoiding harm and the precepts. Embracing and sustaining good qualities, right, doing all good. And embracing and sustaining living beings. So the admonition, you know, the kind of like don't part of this, don't do evil or do no harm now is kind of flipped and expanded into a positive, like embracing, right? Not just, but <laughs> this. And um, Kokio's uh, teacher, uh, Tension Anderson, 
um, has another expression that's similar, but a little different. Um, he says, embrace and sustain forms and ceremonies, right? So do no evil or do no harm. Embracing and sustaining standards of conduct, says Kokyo. Tension says, embrace and sustain forms and ceremonies. And he comments, abandon all inappropriate actions of body, speech, and mind. There, there's the, the karma and the three ways of uh, avoiding harm also in the Vedic and yogic traditions, right? body, speech, and mind. All inappropriate actions of body, speech, and mind, abandon them. Um, the second one he says is wholeheartedly live life based on freedom from the illusion of the independent self. Embrace and sustain all good means to wholeheartedly live life based on freedom from the illusion of the independent self. And then the third uh, Reb says is embrace and sustain all beings. Right? Again, embracing and sustaining, supporting all beings. And his comment on that is, if you do that, then you're practicing the first two with the right attitude. <laughs> That's the right attitude, which again, in the earliest teaching is the pure mind, right? Our purified or pure minds. Now these wordings sound really different and kind of out there maybe compared to the, uh, the earliest simplest teaching but they actually, I think, do reflect how the text could be understood even in the Buddha's time. The, the standards of conduct that, that Kokyo mentions and the forms and ceremonies that, that Reb specifically uh, says are actually all part of the ethical precepts that monks or bodhisattvas vow to uphold. And so doing no harm literally refers to keeping the precepts but there's also a reciprocity between the person practicing in this way and the practice itself. Um, and the way Reb enters this reciprocity between us and doing, or us and something that we think of as harm or good, um, is to, that he notes that in the Japanese that, that talks about these three, that, that gives us these three um, pure precepts, the Japanese character setsu, setsu appears at the beginning of each of the three. And he says the verb expresses both active and passive aspects within one form. So setsu means something like uh, the characters, means something like guiding, like being guided by the precepts, but also being engaged right, by them at the same time. That's the kind of passive part of it or the internalized part of it. Um, so Reb suggests translating this word setsu, kind of unpacks it as embracing and sustaining. But he, asks, he says, we need to understand that we are embraced and sustained by actions that we consider good. And we should embrace and sustain forms and ceremonies and precepts as not doing harm. And, you know, you might note that our, our lineages formulations are increasingly positive, 
right? Rather than doing no harm or more pointedly, don't do evil, don't be evil, right? Isn't, I don't know if Google still embraces that as its motto. The language of these words goes towards wholeheartedness, sustaining, inclusion, freedom, and wholesomeness in the sense of realizing wholeness, wholeness of being and oneness with all beings as bodhisattvas. So this idea of wholeness um, and wholeheartedness is something I wanna explore for just a minute. Um, and then I'll go back to evil. <laughs> I don't wanna dodge evil too much. So the original Pali word, which is translated as um, good, right? Whole good, we translate as good, is kushala, kushala. And that means skillful, virtuous, and wholesome. And things that we might express as harmful are just ah-kushala, right? The same um, letter, ah, which means no or not. It's the negative to negate something. So harmful things are ah-kushala. They're unwholesome. They are um, unskillful. And they tend not to express the reality of non-separation. So doing all good is to be skillful. It's to be virtuous and wholesome. And these are supportive of and express at the same time, the understanding of non-separateness of ourselves from sentient beings. Okay, so that takes us back to the original vocabulary and its associations in the, uh, the Pali version of these three. Okay, so what about evil? You know, and I think our current expression of the Bodhisattva way tends to avoid using words like evil. Um, we have kind of erased it from our language. And, you know, there may be a hesitation to give evil power by naming it. Um, it also uh, helps us to avoid the temptation to label others as evil, um, which is a big temptation sometimes. Um, we, we refrain and sometimes we give in from that, but, but the fact that our precepts don't talk about it um, is interesting. And we do this in order you know, to act, I think, as a check on our judgment and our commenting and our labeling and to encourage us to embrace and sustain all beings you know, without exception. It's a, it's a pretty tall order, but that's what we're asked to do. So I wanted to look at the original Pali for that as well. And what the first line says in the Dhammapada, and I don't um, study Pali, I don't know Pali, I'm relying <laughs> on some others for this, and I can't pronounce it, I'm sure, accurately, so forgive me. Um, the first word in the first uh, of these three is sabapapasa akaranam. Sabapasa is actually a genitive of all harm or of all evil. Evil appears in, in the Pali dictionaries. And akaranam, again, there's that ah, not or non, is akaranam is un or not doing, non-doing. But it's not an imperative. It's not a verb. It's not somebody telling you, don't do this, don't do harm. It's actually, um, what this actually says, literally translated, is 
non-doing, non-doing, akaranam, of all evil. Now that non-doing should ring a little bell for Zen people, right? Non-doing, where have we heard that, right? Um, the the um, second line is kushalasa upasampada. Um, all wholesome or skillful things, kushalasa, also genitive, and upasampada is gathering. So that's where the embracing, I think, that Reb and Kokyo are talking about comes from, from the original wording. Embracing all good, wholesome things, acts, thoughts, deeds, words, right? Same construction as the first. Gathering is the noun. It's a noun. It's not actually telling us to do something. It's a kind of a state. And then this is a very long compound. Sachita pariyodapanam. One's own mind, right? Sachita, your own mind. You're responsible. Cleansing it. Cleansing. That's that's the result of these first two. And then the last line, etam buddhana sasanam. That's the teaching of the Buddhas, plural Buddhas. So that I think is a little bit illuminating to, it, it sort of uh, divorces us a bit from our ideas of, you know, nonviolence as a kind of social engagement or social action to broaden it and maybe to point a little bit in the direction of non-duality, which is where we come down in, in Soto Zen. Um, Reb says that by embracing and sustaining forms and ceremonies, this is a further comment on this, we put down our self-centeredness. We do that by directly confronting sometimes our resistance. You know, why do we have to stand like this? Why do we do these great, you know, these things that we do that are not of our culture? Why do we dress the way we do, some of us? By directly confronting our resistance, he says, we see our selfishness, our self-centeredness. We think we know best, or we know best even just for ourselves. And by taking up forms and ceremonies, we engage in action that harmonizes us with others and expresses fundamental presence without judgment, right? So when we get in line to walk Kinyin and we harmonize our pace and our distance so that we are all you know, equidistant and walking in the same way, we kind of do it a little bit organically, you know, that's one way of putting down our selfishness. Maybe we wanna walk faster or slower, but we just do this. But I think there's an even further step that we um, can take with Dogen. And here I wanna to return to the um, essay in which he quotes the story about Bird's Nest Roshi. Um, the, the Japanese title, it's in the Shobogenzo, it's called Shoaku Makusa. Um, and again, it's the, the meaning of this is a translation into Japanese of do no evil. Um, or something like maybe evil is not done representing the reciprocity of doing and, and not doing. Um, Dogen goes pretty deep into an understanding of what we call evil from the standpoint of absolute reality, non-duality. And so, you know, we can understand do no evil or do no harm, right? Just don't do it. But Dogen is pointing at, well, what is this it? What is this evil? And what is the non-doing of evil? So I'm gonna quote Dogen and I'm gonna do it slowly and I don't expect that it will be easy to follow, but <clears throat> Kokio will come to our rescue. So here's what Dogen says. 
it is not that harm does not exist. It's just that it is not done. Harm is not empty. It is not done. Harm is not form. It is not done. Okay, so I'll read it again. It is not that harm does not exist. It's just that it is not done. Harm is not empty. In the, in the Zen sense of empty of its own inherent existence. It is not done. Harm is not form. It is not done. You know, and you may be, if you are used to the Heart Sutra, a little, another bell may be going off, right? The Heart Sutra says, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form, right? They're not separate from a point of view of non-duality. Here, Dogen seems to say that harm or evil is neither form nor emptiness. It is beyond form and emptiness. And actually what he says to express that is, listen carefully, harm is not not done. <laughs> it is just not done. Very typical Dogen, right? It leaves you going. So if you're still with me, this is where Kokyo comes to the rescue. Kokyo comments, and this is a quote, in Zen, we have the practice of non-doing, the zazen of non-doing, non-action, which doesn't literally mean that you don't do anything, but just that you don't do anything, right? It takes the ego, the self-centeredness out of the equation. And then Kokyo extends this not doing of zazen to not doing harm or evil. He says, and he's directly trying to re, um, recapitulate Dogen to help us understand it. He says, if we don't do harm, if we don't make harm, it doesn't exist on its own. According to Dogen's understanding, there is not inherent evil in the world. If it isn't done, then evil doesn't arise. And that's the end of the quote from Kokyo. So, as I said, in other words, harm or evil have no essential self, no independent being. Evil does not exist in any substantial way. It's created by our minds and expressed through body, speech, and mind. So, Kokyo concludes, so if the mind does not make harm, harm is not made, harm is not done, body, speech, and mind. How do we not make harm? Well, we live in the conventional world of you and me and this and that, and every other kind of you know, opposition and pairing and dualism you can think of. So we refrain from harm as we see it arise. That's how we practice. But we return constantly to Zazen mind, to Zazen and Zazen mind, which does not fabricate reality or contrive it, but rests in stillness. So non-doing harm relies on embracing all good. Samadhi in our meal chant, right? Meditation, zazen, which supports the precepts. It's in this reciprocal relationship. One and two can't be separated. The codependency of these is really close in our practice. And, you know, with Tygen Layton, who is another successor of, of uh, Reb, we can also say, or be reminded, 
that zazen itself is a ceremony, right? We have this form that we, we take. It's not just the formalities we observe, like bowing to our cushions, but we take this form, we, we sit as Buddha. And the instructions that Dogen gives us, specific instructions that we sometimes chance are the order of that ritual. You know, first find a place, quiet place, put down something to sit on, loosen your robes, you know, take up this posture. They are the ritual of Zazen, and they are the instructions for a ritual of expressing the truth of our total presence. So it's not something that we learn as a skill or progress in. It is just something to wholeheartedly engage right here and now. Right? As Dogen says in Fukan Zazengi, if you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, that is itself wholeheartedly engaging the way. Practice realization, he says, is naturally undefiled. That means they're not separate, you know, they're not different, they're not two things. Um, so when we hear, you know, undefiled, we sometimes think we need to clean something, but something is stained, we think we need to clean it. But that's not what it means. It means when something is pure, it's whole, right? Um, and Reb says about Zazen, performing the ceremony of Zazen heals any gap between our lives and the true practice of Buddhas. So this is also a form of healing, or maybe, yes, healing, what sometimes we hear uh, expressed as the wound of separation, right? Our woundedness is our separation from other beings. Sazen is also sometimes called formless repentance. So this means that unlike the rituals of repentance with form, which might be, I'm sorry, <laughs> or the full moon ceremony. Um, in Zazen, if we're fully engaged and we drop off body and mind, we create no karma of body or of speech or of mind, right? We're still and we don't say anything and we drop our thoughts. We don't contrive reality with our thinking. And I think this is what both Kokyo and Tenshin Roshi are referring to when they indicate that evil does not inherently exist. It's not something out there. It's not an independent force. It is produced in our minds. And if we don't make it, it's not made. If we don't do it, it is not done. If we are truly doing Zazen, we are keeping all the precepts all together at once, all 16 of them. Um, so I'm wrapping up now. The third pure precept to embrace and sustain or save all beings, to live and be lived for the benefit of beings, however we wanna express it. Um, the original wording is to purify our minds. So again, we should not hear a reference like we need to fix something. We need to actually like clean something. We should hear again a reference to not separating, not separating self from other. And this also avoids the trap of thinking like we're doing something to improve ourselves, right? I'm cleaning my mind nice and squeaky clean, right? Um, improvement, <laughs> we are purifying our minds. It's like the ultimate self-improvement project, right? So it's a deluded view to think that we need to clean or purify our minds. If we do these things, we are keeping our minds pure. If we uphold the precepts. So I'd like to conclude with a brief quote from Reb. He says, the three pure precepts have been called pure 
because they have been purified of all duality. They are so simply stated that a three-year-old child can understand them. Yet even a person with 80 years of experience may not be able to practice them. The practice of these precepts is like walking a 10,000 mile iron road. Yet all bodhisattvas vow to walk this long and joyful path. And so, you know, I would ask why joyful? Because it leads to liberation. Thank you very much. That there's the thousand mile iron road. Can we have questions? Yeah, for a little while. I'm not sure what our schedule is. Yes, okay. I get a thumbs up from the Zoom monitor. Jack. Yes, uh, Charo, thank you for that, that Dharma talk. It was, it was great. And my question is simply, uh, what fascicle, I'm assuming it, you were quoting Dovin from the Shobo Genzo, and I'm wondering what fascicle uh, specifically that quote on evil was from. Uh, it's in the Shoaku Makusa. Um, so if you have the complete Shobo Genzo, it's, that's it. And it's, I think it's usually uh, translated as, you know, like do no harm or not doing harm or no harm is done. Thank you. It's long, by the way. It's a long, oh. <laughs> I started from there and I thought, oh no, I can't, I can't actually talk about all this. So I, I kind of went in a different direction and I'm glad I did. I learned a lot from preparing this talk. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Rich, I see you. I'm going to try to scroll through, but just unmute, you know, put up your hand and then unmute. Yeah, Rich, I see you. Um, so you mentioned Gandhi and um, as an example of somebody who practiced nonviolence. And um, I just keep thinking, well, I was just thinking, you know, Gandhi did lead a big movement to sort of oppose the British, right? I mean, he didn't... Uh, he didn't just sort of shy away from confronting what was going on in his country, right? So, but he did it in such a way that he didn't hurt anybody. He tried not to to kill or or hurt anybody, right? He he urged his followers not to kill. Um. So I feel like he was trying to show that it wasn't just like you go up into a tree and and stay away from the world, right? right? Um. So there's an active part of it, right, of nonviolence, where it's not just I'm going to uh, go up a tree and try to avoid any sort of a involvement with the world. So um, I guess one of the things that's, that I've been, we've been studying at the AZC is the, is this idea of racism and white supremacy and uh, what we should, how we should try to wake up to it. And um, I, one of the, in one of the, I forget where we said this, but in one of the, books, it said something like uh, race is a, is a social construction, right? It's just something you, that's been created. It's not a real thing, but still it does harm, right? And so I was just going to say that it seems like that's an example of, I would consider racism an evil in society that's generally created by people's thoughts, right? And so maybe the, the end of racism is just people stop just challenge their own thoughts about things. And maybe also people also actively get out and challenge the, the, the ways of racism in the world. Would you agree with that? 
You know, I think this is an example of one of the things that we, at the moment, are feel kind of comfortable in calling evil because we see, we see the harm. You know, it's it's unavoidable, right? The harm and the violence um, of racism. So it's pretty um, pretty common, uh, you know, thinking to say this is evil. And I wouldn't go around saying no, evil doesn't exist. It doesn't really have its own being. You know, it's it, there is no inherent thing called evil because I don't think that's skillful. You know, right. right. Maybe, I would say that one of the things people have pointed out, especially some of the better thinkers about racism, is that it's not necessarily racism isn't actually something that you are. It's mostly what you do, like maybe with your body, speech, and mind, right? <laughs> so it's like I can't, I cannot be a racist so much as I have racist tendencies or a racist conditioning or racist, you know, and that that's what I need to look at, you know. And I think that's just, that's you know that sort of means that. If I oppose racism, I'm not necessarily opposing any person. I'm opposing some social construction that, you know what I mean? And um, when, I, when I hear the talk about uh, non-duality, this idea that, you know, there is no person, there's no doer, really. It's not like, or there's no thing there behind evil it's just a it's just a question of what you are how you are thinking about things and or and how you those lead to actions right is that right i think so i mean kokio says that when he hesitated to say that evil doesn't actually or substantially in a you know in a as a thing exist because he said much you know ink has been spilled in theology <laughs> philosophy you know, in every kind of way about whether there is what evil is and whether it exists as a force in the world. And it's certainly been in many systems of thought and religions personified, right, as a force, as a, a person, you know, there's Satan, there's the devil. Right. right. Those are just symbols though, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's that strong, really. It's that strong that it gets that expression. And we're afraid, you know, we fear it because we see uh, it's the results of it, which are devastating and terrible. So I, when I start to get confused about our understanding and our categorizing, and I, and I want to say I support this waking up work, and I've done some of it not so much with people at AZC. Um, I, I'm always interested to see my own um, resistance to it, you know, which is something I don't want to explore here. But, you know, I think all of us white folks have some sense of you know, like, oh, I, I don't want to be called racist because that means I'm a bad person. Kind of what you're saying, Rich. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I was trained in the social sciences. And so it's easy for me because of my academic training to say, oh, it's just a social category, right? It's just a social construct. That means it can't hurt anybody, but it does, right? And there are so many categories that we divide beings up into that by which we can justify disregarding them killing them, hurting them, not including them. So what I come back to, this is what helps me in all situations, is just to remember all living beings, all beings, I vow to save them. And that means, you know, the sixth ancestor says this in the Platform Sutra, um, the sixth Chinese ancestors, and this is pre-Dogen Chinese Zen, I vow to save all the beings in my mind, <laughs> right? That's one way to understand that vow. 
come here and sit with me, right? Right, um, right. So it's kind of like what I, I think of when I think of Gandhi, I think of the way he somehow managed to embrace those people that were his enemies or called his enemies, like when also Martin Luther King or Thich Nhat Hanh had that sort of same sort of expansive view. Yeah, we call uh, them saints, right? <laughs> They're yeah, I mean, I don't know how they did it exactly, but yeah. I'd like to try. Yeah, we are all called to be saints on some level, you know, to emulate this behavior and we fall short and we keep trying, we keep trying. So thank you for that question. I'm not sure I can fully meet it in this context, but, or any context, but um, I think it's important to just constantly, if we start to become feeling conflicted or feeling like we're in conflict, even with ideas, to just remember saving all beings, saving all beings. Yeah. Jose? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Uh, so uh, I'm still trying to fully internalize the difference between uh, the not doing of harm versus do no harm. Uh, and that brings me to uh, the fact that a lot of people may have, uh, you know, may act out of a position of not doing harm and yet still unintentionally cause harm. And I think a lot of uh, harm uh, ends up uh, uh, occurring that way. Um, and so uh, and so am I right to interpret that, like, uh, if you act out of a position of not doing harm, uh, that that's all you can possibly do, whereas uh, there's no way you can say, I will do no harm because you, know, you can't control the things that, uh, that result from your actions. What, the way I view this, I think, is that, um, you know, karma is created by intentional action. So if you didn't intend harm, but nevertheless, something you do causes harm, you can repent and make amends. You can say, I'm sorry. You can try to, you can acknowledge the impact, but actual karma is created by intentional action of body, speech, and mind. And so when I see my evil thoughts come up, I try not to indulge them. I say, oh, see you, I see you. I'm not gonna, you know, the way of not doing those thoughts in part, not just, it's not just not expressing them is what I've come to understand for myself. It's actually, um, not fueling them, relinquishing them, you know, like if you, not indulging them, not, Suzuki Roshi said, don't invite them in for tea, you know, don't make them comfortable, <laughs> don't let them proliferate. And this is practicing, you know, with what we have. I, I mean, I sometimes think it's like fake it till you make it, right? And so we say, do no harm, right? I, you, you, you make your best effort living from that to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings and you still inadvertently or sometimes you know you just do it you just like indulge that thought or that act or that that speech and then you say you know did this make me feel more liberated and free and joyful mm, usually not it's like this momentary release and then it's back to uh oh you know unskillful i don't feel so good <laughs> right so i think we have to we, we practice with these both as prohibitions or don't, you know, and we also practice with them as um, taking the self out of it and then not create, and things are not created when we don't activate that sense of self-interest and self-centeredness. And what we're taught is ultimately things just stop arising or not arising so strongly when we, the more we practice and see the truth of interconnectedness, then, you know, we act from that place, from that understanding. But we have to overcome a lot of what I think we were talking about a couple of weeks ago is habit energy. 
right? Habit energy, which keeps, um, you know, impelling us in another direction. But if we say, oh, wait, I don't actually believe that. <laughs> That's not what I understand. It's, it loses its grip. It loses its strength over time. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Tracy? figure out how to unmute there. Good morning, Charo. Good morning. Thank you so much for that very rich talk. Hey, um, that 10,000 mile long iron road, mm -hmm. I think you said was how Reb phrased it. Yeah, that image is uh, uh, rather, uh, it is an image from, um, from Dogen uh, of a 10,000 mile long iron bar. Iron bar, yeah. Yeah, well, in that, how he uses it in whatever, fascicle. Um, but what I wanted to say was about your comp, your last, the very last thing you said was about uh, something like, well, and, and is there, Reb saying, well, that's a joyful 10,000 mile long road. And you said something like, and the joy is in the, that very long, endless road is that it's leading to, to liberation. Yeah. And, and as soon as she said that, I was thinking, and the joy is in the, liber the, the, the liberation that's happening as the path, as you're undertaking the path, as in, yeah, it's leading, and it's happening in the, the doing. Yeah, I, think, I don't think Reb says it leads to yeah the path itself right that, it that that we if we fully embrace it this moment includes all other moments that's another one of those mind-blowing actions yeah. of yes. that i trust is true and sometimes have some glimpse of you know and that's sitting in zazen that's zazen mind everything is included right now in this moment um all beings all times everything so yeah be Stepping on the path or, or knowing you're on the path or walking the path, it's, it's a thousand miles of iron, but we're on it, we're always on it, you know, every step. And it is liberation if it's, if it's thoroughly practiced. It's, it's liberation and that is joy. That is joy, yeah. Yeah, I like that word thorough that you put in there. That's a, that, that's a key. It's, it's not original, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm just looking at the second page of folks to make sure I'm not missing anybody. Um, are we complete? Do we feel we've said enough today? Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming today.